Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. Uh, before we dismiss the kids, I would like to have Bailey stand. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Bailey has been uh, now commissioned as a Sunday school teacher in this church. She's going to be training under Katie today and will continue to train until she is sent across the world in September to open a preschool and teach in a foreign context. And we're so excited. I just wanted to pray over Bailey. Lord God, we are so, so blessed to have Bailey in our lives. You have grown her up uh, at the center of so many people of this church, and our eyes have been on her, and our hope has been in you and the blessing and the call you've put on her life. So God, we're so thankful that she's going to be here teaching and training for the next month. God, bless her in her service to you, and uh, do amazing and powerful things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, kids, we'll see you in a bit. So, the rest of us, we've had a a good start with a chat this morning. I think I'm just going to keep that going for a second. Uh, I'm actually looking for gardeners. I know, I think, Johnson's, you all gardener, right? Garden, garden. Nate, you guys garden. Anyone else gardeners? A little bit, a little, a little of this, a little of that. Okay. So what, what do y'all grow? Vegetables, anybody? Veggie people? Pumpkins. That's specific. Yeah. Excellent. We'll be stopping by in about, I don't know, what, 60 days? Yeah. Uh, what about you guys? What, what, is, what is this happening? Fruit, vegetables, flowers? Tangerines, peaches, baby's potatoes. Oh, that sounds serious. <laughs> no? How's the tomato business? Going good. Banana juice. Like bananas. Wow. Like big bananas or like. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, so uh, for those of you who grow, tell me how do you feel about weeds? Never ending. Yeah. I heard it. I want to interpret that as no, don't love them. How about you guys? Weeds? Thoughts? Itchy? This one's really specific. Do any of you have thoughts about wild mustard? No thoughts. It burns fast. Oh, oh, that could be bad. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of it, okay. Um, We're going to come back to that. So I don't have a green thumb, like, at all. I have a couple of succulents that sit on the kitchen counter, like that deal. I have one basil plant from Trader Joe's, if anybody has done that, right? Totally thought I lost it like a week ago, but it rallied. So I'm going to cook some sausage and basil it up today before it it actually dies. So um, I'm not good at plant keeping. And apparently, I'm also not a good judge of plant character. I, I was over at the Buena Vista Lagoon Audubon Center once, and a botanist scolded me, like actually harshly because I was admiring the wild mustard. And that person had words for me about how mustard is an invasive species, that it should be eradicated in California. I did not know that. 
I just like yellow. So there's an image coming up, and it appeals to me. And I think it's worth pondering, like regardless of your expertise in flora. So we're looking at a woman in a blue dress, white apron, like pink cap. Uh, she appear, appears to be inspecting a flower, maybe deciding whether or not to add it to her basket. And the caption reads, is this one a flower or a weed? I'm not sure whether I should admire it or not. Now, as someone who thinks that dandelions and mustard have lovely visual qualities, I can definitely relate to this question. And to me, it also begs a couple of further questions. Like number one, what exactly constitutes a weed? And number two, what's admirable? So I'm gonna ask you guys about that. We actually have a little bit of an expert in the house and I'm gonna come back to her. Uh, first, what makes something a weed? Any thoughts? Something that's unwanted. Yes. It's unwanted. Anything else? It's location. No, yeah, good. It's in my lawn, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's location. Yeah, it doesn't belong. It's in the way. It wasn't planted. It wasn't intentional. Uh, what about, why are some plants called invasive? And I'm going to defer to Bonnie on this, our, uh, our local conservation biologist. What makes something invasive? Perfect. So if you didn't hear that, um, there's this balance happening between native and non-native, and she used this phrase, it's choking out the native species. So yes, to the detriment of the ecosystem and possibly even to the health of humans, which I thought was an interesting point. Uh, so something more general, what makes something admirable? Any thoughts? No. Oh, okay, so on the negative side, sure. What makes something admirable? Beauty, okay. Anything else? Yeah, that's certainly subjective, right? Beauty in the eye of the beholder. You're pondering. Value, ooh, value. Okay, good. Yeah, because we and we talked about things that belong, things that don't belong. Whether there's food, is that what you said? Oh, bear's fruit. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> you just shouted, "Food! Food makes it admirable." <laughs> okay. So that gives us some sense of like the grasp of um, the acceptability of certain plants, let's say. So now, thinking back to that image, I want to shift to just a more general conversation about who or what belongs in any basket. So this morning, the message is woven from the lectionary for August. We're going to begin with Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and we're going to look at Genesis and the formation of Israel then Matthew's account of the gospel, and then finally Isaiah, in order to understand who's who with respect to the people of God, and then hopefully by the end, we'll find out who all is in the people of God basket. So this is from Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. So what was Paul's opening question? Anybody catch it? It's on the screen. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Why would Paul ask that? His letter was to a church, to believers. How could rejection be their concern? Well, to know that, we need context. So listen to Romans chapter 10, 9 through 21, which is the part that immediately precedes that question about rejection. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So now with this, we can start to see what prompted the question. In chapter 10, Paul outlined the good news. That is Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. And Paul stated that everyone in Christ who believed and obeyed would enjoy his salvation. But not everyone had. So Paul continued. He's writing a series of rhetorical questions, and he himself will answer them. Here's the first one. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? And he was meaning the people of Israel in his day. Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul said that with confidence that the people in question had heard the word of God. And he could say that knowing that the disciples had been commanded to carry the gospel to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and they had worked out that task in their regions. So then he addressed whether or not the people had comprehended what they heard. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Yes, wrote Paul, and now he's quoting this ancient prophecy. Israel understood the message of God as it pertained to them, but they did not collectively live into the covenant relationship outlined in that message. And then on top of that, Israel resented the others. And I'm going to use air quote others outside of their nation who also understood and followed the word of God and were accepted by him. So Israel's rejection of God in Christ was willful, and the adoption of Gentiles into God's covenant with Abraham was a consequence designed to recall the nation's heart for the Lord. Now next, Paul quoted the prophet Isaiah. 
Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now let me ask you something else. Have you heard this next verse? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receive, receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Does that sound familiar? Anybody shout out, who said that? Jesus. Yes, Matthew wrote it down. Jesus said it. But before Jesus spoke those words, Isaiah prophesied that God would extend his great love to populations beyond Israel and to people who were once far from God, and they would find him, even effortlessly so. And yet Israel, the chosen ones, would remain contrary to him, persistently disobedient. And so Paul asked and answered, I ask then, like in light of all the historical disobedience in the ancient world, as God rejected his people. By no means, he says, I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Despite God's people hearing, knowing, and willfully rejecting the word of God, God ins Paul insisted that God's favor on them was unwavering. Yes, rejection happened but only in one direction, and that wasn't from God. Paul answered this question of rejection by saying, by no means. And that was clear then, and that's clear to us now. Why then did Paul also include this sort of obscure reference to his particular heritage as a Benjamite? because dropping the name Benjamin was a deep cut in the first century, and they would have understood that without explanation. But we might need a tour through Genesis to help us get the reference. So to understand the significance of Paul being a Benjamite, we need to know Joseph, the son of Jacob, who importantly was also called Israel, as in the 12 tribes of Israel, so to get that, we're going to do a short version of Genesis chapters 37 to 45, and that's a huge chunk, and we're going to break it down like this, but you should read it later because it reads like a crazy novel. So starts like this. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob and Rachel, and his older brothers hated him. In fact, they wanted to kill him, but instead Joseph was sold into slavery. And that was like 1,700 years before the time of Christ, Joseph was about 17 years old. After he spent a bunch of years enslaved and imprisoned, a divine act led to Joseph's release, and he rose to the second most powerful person in Egypt. He was in charge of the grain stores where the food was kept. Now, Joseph was about 30 years old by then, and there was a famine in Israel where his family still lived. Because of the famine, Jacob, remember the dad, sent the oldest brothers to Egypt to buy food. Now, Joseph immediately recognized his brothers, but they didn't know him. 
So Joseph fed his family and compelled them to return to Egypt with the youngest brother, Benjamin. Later on, forced by starvation, the brothers did return. During that visit, Joseph conspired to frame Benjamin for theft and threatened to enslave him. But, plot twist, Judah, who once conspired against Joseph, offered to redeem Benjamin with his own life. Then seeing this great sacrificial change in his brother, Joseph revealed himself to his family, explaining to his brothers that what they had intended for evil so many years ago, God had used for good. Joseph said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then it goes on to say, he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he kissed him and he wept and then Benjamin laid on his neck and kissed him and wept and then all the brothers are kissing and crying and it was a moment. And with that, we got to notice these layers. Joseph was saved by God from slavery, from death, in accordance with God's promise to make Jacob and Abraham before him into a great nation. Benjamin... Israel's son was then saved by that once rejected brother Joseph. And from Benjamin came the smallest tribe in Israel. And from that small tribe came Paul, who was himself saved by Christ in the middle of a murderous campaign against Christ followers. It is all connected. Every person redeemed and saved by Christ is connected to all of God's people. So now we can look back to Romans with a new understanding. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God did not reject Jacob. He did not reject Jacob's wicked and jealous sons for their treatment of Joseph. He did not reject or abandon Joseph to slavery and imprisonment. He did not reject the nation of Israel that then grew and expanded in Egypt during that time of famine and later. Instead, God brought all of the tribes of Israel out of that land, out of their eventual slavery, in a massive act of salvation for all of his people. And God did not reject Israel as they grumbled their way through the desert. And he did not reject them later when they demanded worldly kings to rule over them. In everything, God remained faithful to the nation he first chose to be light to the world. Which brings us back to the second part of Paul's answer to the Romans. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What God gives he does not withdraw. What God extends, he does not retract. Any distance between God and humanity 
is engineered in the heart of any person who rejects the offer of his presence. Humans have agency to disobey God, to reject him. And Paul said that some had, even while God remained constant, faithful, and true. Not everyone appreciated or wanted to emulate God's boundless mercy or his generous inclusivity. In fact, besides rejecting God, those same nations alternately rejected new people groups and communities that gathered in his name. And by doing so, Jews and Gentiles and elements of the early church all veered off his holy mission. So Paul's back there, and he was reminding the members of God's integrated Roman church that all of them were once not a people. But first, while they were strangers and foreigners, Israel was appointed as a favored nation to draw the whole world to God. And then Israel rebelled. So God drew Gentiles to himself to provoke a positive, jealous response from Israel to bring them back to his heart. And so it went. And throughout the history, people on both sides resented the unifying process and the other people invited into it. That's ungodly. God's call on humanity is ever-inclusive. That's just a fact. His plan was and is global redemption. There are no others. Jesus' work on the cross, that is salvation, was universal and it is timeless. Remember, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable and Jesus is the ultimate gift. Listen to Isaiah, who shared this whole plan with Israel in advance of Christ, well ahead of the formation of a church body that would include Gentiles, women, and every category of others in their ranks. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Did you hear how many people are lifted up in the prophet's words? Who all were called beautiful flowers? Who all were added to God's basket? All who join themselves to the Lord are included in the basket. All who keep the Sabbath and bring their offerings. All the outcasts. All the people. And that has to be good news. To everyone who has heard the word, that is everyone who hears, 
believes, and obeys. Isaiah's words are more assurance that life in Christ is offered to everyone irrevocably. So we're hearing that God's plan for humanity is redemption and salvation in Christ is offered to all people without divine prejudice. Are there then any weeds or invasive species among people? Was Paul's conversation about rejection pointless? Not at all. First, he reiterated the immutable character of God who never rejected humanity and who would never revoke the preventing grace or saving offer. Second, he established that humans have a historical and ongoing history of rejection of God. And third, Paul mentioned the consequences of group rebellions. Remember, nations were provoked to jealousy so that all might return to the God they once loved. And that last one, I believe, suggests that there might also be personal consequences for rejecting God and for attempting to thwart his mercy towards all people. Now, this next verse comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 15, and I think it speaks to that last point. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. Now, it occurs to me then that those specific powerful people and I suspect others like them, who held the law of Moses over the people of Israel, who judged them relentlessly, and who rejected the Messiah, that is Christ in their presence, are the ones not planted by the Father. They're the only ones not called flowers. They're the only ones referred to here as weeds. They are the blind guides, as are any who are not rooted in Christ and yet claim to speak in the name of God. They are the ones to be let alone and not followed because they are not grounded in God's love, but instead manipulate the rule of God and covet positions of power. So now let's think back one last time to the image of the woman in the field, and we'll put this all together. Yes, we should be aware that there are flowers to be admired and there are weeds to be avoided. And yes, weeds risk being uprooted, but that's not our business. That's God's, and we can trust him to that. Which leaves us to take stock of ourselves. We really should be working out our root systems and paying attention to where we're planted. And when we're doing that, we can also nourish, and cultivate all of the living things around us. But while we're at it, let's be aware of this one last point. God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That truth may be difficult to swallow because in those conditions, everything can flourish. But if we've learned from the past today, isn't it likely 
that God operates the way he does because he is still making a divine and patient effort to draw every person back to himself. I mean, after all, isn't it by his long-suffering green thumb that we find ourselves well-tended, pruned, bearing fruit, casting seeds, and lifted up irrevocably into his basket? And if that is our good fortune by the grace of God, shouldn't we operate in the same way? And if so, I have just a few final questions. In light of God's grace toward us, who should we be making space for and lifting up in turn? Who do we know needs the same loving care and kindness that we have been shown? How might we be a fragrant presence in their lives because we have grown into the likeness of Christ? And just one last question. Might our hearts for all of God's people need to be bigger baskets? Let me end with this prayer. Help us, merciful God, to tend the garden you've planted us in and perceive all of the people around us as mercifully as you do.